Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. One of the disturbing trends from this past year is the vandalism and destruction in some cases of different kinds of church property. At least 31 Catholic buildings that we're aware of have been vandalized. Uh, perhaps the most common occurrence is the damage done to statues. Uh, but in some cases, the destruction of church property has been severe, more, much more severe. The USCCB, we've been monitoring these events and taking some initial steps to address the issue. And to talk about some of these steps and possibly some others, we have Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron is Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, serving the good people of Santa Barbara, California. He's well known for his work with Word on Fire Ministries. And he is also chairman of the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis and a member of the Committee for Religious Liberty. Your Excellency, uh, I know that you are so busy. Where I was just saying how you juggle being a bishop and, and running a media apostolate. I don't know how you do it. So I appreciate you taking time to come talk to us. Oh, thank you. Good morning to both of you. Probably good afternoon where you are. Huh? For having me just today. about. So, thank you. I echo Aaron's thanks, Bishop Barron. First of all, could you just talk about what is going on with these attacks on church property? Why do you think we've seen this uptake in recent years? Yeah, you know, it's a complex phenomenon. I'm always reluctant to give just a simple, univocal answer to these things. Um, it's part of this general concern this past summer, you know, for social justice. Uh, there's a real concern about injustice in our society, and so people have risen up and so on. So I, I don't want to discount that. I, mean, I think there's a legitimate concern that people have. But I agree with you. There's something about the hostility toward the faith in particular that's disturbing. And I do think it's, it's sort of philosophically understandable in light of some of the influences that are on young people today, coming not so much from the classical liberalism that someone like Martin Luther King would have uh, dialogued with, but coming much more from this sort of woke, postmodern, intersectionality view. And on that view, influenced much more by people like Nietzsche and Michel Foucault and others, the church is, I think, recognized as the, the opponent. The church that stands for objective intellectual and moral values, the church that stands for, um, you know, the tradition, et cetera. And I think that's the reason why uh, the church has been particularly targeted. And someone like Junipero Serra, out in my you know neck of the woods here, mm -hmm. uh, is being blamed for every form of you know patriarchy and sexism and violence and white supremacy, et cetera. I mean, all of which is is uh, ridiculous for those who know Junipero Serra's real story. But I do think it's part of that uh, philosophical trend in. Uh, the contemporary scene that is rather anti-religious. I think you're seeing a manifestation of that. Well, you mentioned your neck of the woods. You found yourself actually at the center of this issue uh, this past summer. I, if, if I recall, it was in Solvang, uh, where there was going to be a rally. And so you took some direct action in that case. I wonder if you could just tell us what happened there. Yeah, the background, Aaron, is uh, a little before that. There was a uh, an effort in Ventura, which is about half hour from me, closer to L.A., to remove a statue of Junipero Serra. Now, it wasn't a statue on church property. It was on public property in the middle of the city. been there for a long time. And there was a move to, to get rid of it. Well, I did join a group that was praying and protesting at the statue, but it wasn't our statue or our property. So we didn't really have the final say over that. 
we tried to influence people and, and encourage them to, to stand in opposition, but that was eventually voted uh, down and that statue was removed. But then we heard about this attempt, and you say up in uh, Santa Ines, Solvang area, to go on the grounds of the Santa Ines mission and remove a statue of Junipero Serra. Well, when I heard that, I just said, okay, that's it. We got to draw the line. I mean, we can't tolerate people coming on our property and removing a statue of one of our great saints recently canonized by Pope Francis, you know. So, you know, again, I have very little authority as the auxiliary bishop, but I cleared that with Archbishop Gomez and said, what I'd like to do is just be present there, maybe help to organize a mass. And then, and then we didn't have a lot of people stay. Most people left after the mass, but then a core group stayed. And we simply surrounded the statue and we prayed. And then the protesters came and the police kept them off the property of the mission, but they were nearby and you could certainly see and hear them. And they had their protest and we prayed while they protested and then they, they left. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was important that we took a stand. It was completely nonviolent. It was based upon prayer. Uh, I gave a homily at the mass talking about the importance of Winnipeg Sarah and, and why the opposition to him was, you know, at best exaggerated. So I thought it was a good thing. Since then, frankly, it's kind of calmed down. There was concern that there'd be, you know, follow-up and other protests, but there, there really haven't been. Uh, and I think, you know, to my mind, it was important that the church take a stand there. And uh, that's what I would encourage, actually, uh, going forward. I, I, I don't think it's a good idea for us just to acquiesce, nor to hide our statues away. I think we have to of course, in a nonviolent way, of course, never using the weapons of the world, et cetera, never fighting fire with fire, but yet standing prayerfully and resolutely in defense of our own saints, our own property. Um, so that's what we did that day. And I think it, you know, please God, it worked out well. Did you, I wonder in that particular instance, I mean, did you get much response from the protesters? Were you, were the, did they ever get close enough where I mean, because so many of us would never have never been in a situation like that. Yeah. I'm just wondering what a listener who might be afraid to to do something yeah. like that, what they might wonder, well, what was that like? You know, what yeah. what it was like to have people screaming at you and attacking your faith right in front of you. Yeah. And the two situations I mentioned, Ventura and uh, San Inez were different. Ventura, people were much more in, in the face of, of the, those who were resisting. They were right there. And Solvang, I'd say they were more at a distance. But still, yes, we could hear all the slogans and, you know, a lot of silly and insulting things were being said about Hunipro Serra. Um, we responded with chants and with prayer and with the rosary. Mm-hmm. Uh, no shouting involved. There was no, uh, you know, arguing involved. And that's the way it went. I mean, I suppose it's a, there's a little bit of a danger of, of being caught in a confrontation. But I thought, you know, heck, it's, it's worth it, whatever little danger there is no real danger but whatever real confrontation there might be i think it's it's a price worth paying mm-hmm. i think it's interesting that you know protesters are are loud i think there's a lot of beauty is um beauty is often silent yeah beauty invites reflection beauty mm-hmm. is um sometimes in ways passive and i i was just thinking about you know these protesters are they they well inform like it, you mentioned attacking religion, right? And that they're that's the, what they're reacting against. And do you get the sense that they were well informed and they were educated about? I mean, I guess it, I'm just getting to like, what really is motivating them? Are they attacking religion, or 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 is there something wounded in them that just is seeking that that 
they were there was some instigator they saw a tar target Mm -hmm. And um, this is their outlet towards uh, being vocal and expressing some type of angst. Yeah. No, as I said at the outset, I do think there's you know, a legitimate concern for injustice in our country. And that people, especially young people, are, are understandably and even laudably interested in fighting against that. Good. I'm all in favor of it. I'm a great advocate of Martin Luther King and especially the religious leadership of the movement in the 1960s against uh, social injustice. So I think that's terrific. I do think, though, a lot of young people today are in the grip of this uh, more woke, postmodern intersectionality business, and they learned it in school. Uh, it's been part of the educational establishment in our country now for a long time. And I think they've been taught to identify certain people as symbolic of patriarchy and male oppression and white oppression and so on. I mean, look at the protest this past summer, or the, the objection to um, Damien of Molokai, you know, which I thought was the height of lunacy. Here's this man who was one of the most selfless people of the 19th century, gave his life utterly in service to the point of death in service of the native people of Hawaii. And he's being identified as a, as a member of the white patriarchal establishment. I mean, that, to my mind, simplistic and, and uh, extremely superficial way of analyzing things is downright dangerous. And I do think the young people have taken some of that in, in the educational establishments of our country. And that's regrettable. And certainly in terms of Junipero Serra, I'd say they were very poorly informed indeed. Uh, how many histories of Junipero Serra did they read? Did they see him simply as a convenient symbol of all that's wrong with 18th century Spanish colonialism? And look, there was plenty wrong with it. <laughs> I'm no fan of 18th century Spanish colonialism. But to identify Junipero Serra as the, as the symbol of it is, is historically uh, ludicrous. You know? mm -hmm. But I do think they, they have been shaped to some degree by the educational establishment, but also by, let's be honest, the whole internet world, which often trades in superficialities and sloganeerings and so on. Uh, I think, and that's what you saw on their placards and what you heard in their slogans was just that kind of uh, business. Well, Mary mentioned this, um, the, the topic of beauty. So we kind of want to pivot to that a little bit. You know, I mean, this, this issue, it, it's, it's a delicate one for the USCCB to, to address because there's not a mass campaign to do this at a national level. And so we don't want to interfere with, with local responses yeah. and that sort of thing. Uh, but one thing that we have, one initial step we've taken, um, and, and we're, we still continue to talk and, and think about what's appropriate for us to do. But one initial step we've taken is to start this um, campaign called Beauty Heals, mm -hmm. where bishops share stories about sacred art in their dioceses. And Bishop Barron, we are partly inspired because of your own discussions about this um, on beauty and evangelization. Um, certainly we need to defend ourselves. And in, but even as we defend ourselves, we also want to testify to our hope yeah. in Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity to bear witness, just like you did in, in, the, in the response um, that you saw uh, in Solvang, um, the prayerful response. And we want to show, like, talk about why these actions are so particularly offensive to us. What, is, what does sacred art mean for Catholics? Uh, what does it mean when you knock down a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary? And so I wonder if you could if if you could talk a little bit about this about this connection between beauty and evangelization. Why does why does beauty matter for evangelization? 
Yeah, good. I think it matters enormously. And, and especially in our time, I, I mentioned the postmodern framework, you know, for a lot of postmodern people, appealing to the true or the good is automatically problematic. If you say, here's the truth, you know, all the hackles go up. Who are you to tell me what's true? Or even worse, if you say, here's what's good, here's the way you ought to be living, people get defensive. But I've, I've encouraged the use of this third transcendental property, to use the classical language. You have the true, you have the good, and you have the beautiful. The beautiful is, is less threatening to people, I think. I'm not telling you what to think or how to behave. I'm just saying, look, look at this. Look at this beautiful object or statue or, or listen to this symphony or read this poem, whatever. The beautiful has a way of knocking down people's defenses, I think, and, and getting more gently, if you want, into their hearts and minds. And so it's long been used in our great tradition as a vehicle of evangelization for that purpose. And there's so many stories of great figures who were evangelized not so much by hearing an argument or by watching the life of a saint, though that happens all the time, but they were evangelized by a cathedral. They were evangelized by a piece of music. They were evangelized, you know, by, uh, by Dante. So the beautiful can be a weight into the soul for sure. Now, since those three are connected, the true, the good, and the beautiful, the beautiful leads to both of the other ones. It does. If you take it really seriously and you follow it all the way, you'll come to the true and the good as well. Um, and that's why it's part of our Catholic genius, I think, is that we have used the beautiful over the centuries. We've resisted the iconoclastic uh, tendency. And, and you watch that up and down the centuries. Go back to the original iconoclast controversy, you know, with people like uh, John Damascene, you know, and John Damascene resists iconoclasm and says, no, no, the icons, these beautiful pictures can be a bearer of, of the transcendent, a bearer of the divine. And I've always argued without John of Damascus, there's no Michelangelo, there's no uh, Dante, there's no uh, Shark Cathedral, there's no Sistine Chapel, that all that came from his resistance to iconoclasm. So that's why I see statues get knocked down that's an old, old, old problem, you know, in our tradition of people want to let's knock down the beautiful things. And uh, it might be politically motivated today, but there's something deep in our Catholic DNA, I think, that, that uh, resists this destruction of beautiful things because we see them as bearers of the transcendent. Could you unpack that a little bit more about the, I mean, the unique the Catholic Christian, Christianity uh, mm -hmm. perspective on beauty. I mean, what, what makes our perspective of beauty unique? I mean, I have, you know, some people may look at beautiful crucifix and say, that's beautiful to me, right? But, yeah. you know, so what is it uniquely about uh, the Catholic notion of beauty that is, that is particular to us? Well, first of all, you're right in suggesting that the beautiful is a very big category. Uh, Aquinas says the beautiful occurs at the intersection of integritas, wholeness, consonantia, harmony, and claritas, radiance, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. So you're right, a, a beautiful Sistine Chapel or a, a Cezanne painting or a, even, a, even a sort of grossly realistic crucifix could all be beautiful under that rubric of the three qualities, you know. So I don't want to define it in some very particular way. I mean, the beautiful is a huge category. But in answer to your question, I go back to John of Damascus again. Uh, in resisting iconoclasm, he said, God made an icon of himself. So 
uh, Paul refers to Jesus as the icon of the invisible God, and that becomes the interpretive key then, is if God made an icon of himself in Jesus, then we can make icons that participate in Jesus' manner of being, and they can communicate to us still something of the transcendent. So I would say it's an incarnational sensibility, which is deeply Catholic, and, and we have resisted. Another one, to be frank about it, 16th century Reformation, there was an out burst of iconoclasm. You know, think of all the churches in Europe that were kind of wrecked by those that wanted to get rid of, of stained glass windows and statues and icons, etc. And the church, the Catholic Church resisted that. In fact, turned up the heat then. So people like Bernini and company emerge in the wake of the Reformation to say, you don't like icons? I'm going to give you icons. You, know, you don't like statues? We're going to give you statues. So, I mean, I, I applaud that. I think that was a good Catholic reaction to an outbreak of iconoclasm. So anyway, that's a very interesting question, and I think the recovery of the beautiful is an important part of our own uh, evangelical moment. I mean, I guess a flip way to ask it, though, is also, you know, is there a way of beauty that's, that is maybe thinking about it that's, that could be false? Mm -hmm. I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I think about some particular forms of architecture that you see in D.C. and Washington, D.C. that don't that they don't really seem to they don't really seem to communicate the beautiful. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and so I wonder about that, too. Like, do you and do you think that a culture that embraces a, a bad idea of the beautiful, that, that that indicates that there's maybe something problematic going on in that culture? You know, and there's two sides to your question. It's a good question. The first one, the spiritual problem with the path of the beautiful would be idolatry. So, indeed, if you if you embrace beautiful objects in such a way that you're reducing the sacred to that object, then you've got the problem of idolatry. Has that existed? Sure, sure, up and down the centuries. And the iconoclasts, to give them their due, were trying to resist forms of idolatry. And, again, read the Protestant reformers, the same thing. They, they were seeing the danger of idolatry okay, as far as that's true, then we should be against it. Then the second part of your question, I think, is about, you know, now types of uh, art. And we see now one honors more fully the, the standards of beauty, others fall short. A further refinement of the question would be Catholic beauty. So can certain forms bear the Catholic weight, if you will, if you will, and others are less capable of that. Now, we're going to get into some deep waters there, a lot of debates around architecture. So when I was coming of age, you know, most of the churches were built in a very um, spared back, you know, kind of Cistercian style, very little decoration, little artwork, um, following kind of the Bauhaus modernism approach. And, and I would share a, a, a resistance to that myself. I think those were not the best bearers of the Catholic truth in its fullness. But that's a, that's a more refined debate we can have around uh, the beautiful, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So, Bishop Barron, as we wind up towards uh, the end of our discussion, could you talk about, I don't know, are there ideas that you have for how Christians can respond to these attacks on church property? Since many of us won't have to deal directly with this problem, hopefully, yeah. um, what practices can we engage in to develop the habits and virtues necessary to respond well to these kinds of attacks? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I've been sort of musing about it. I, I'm not sure I've got a really clear answer. I'd just say a couple of things, maybe gesturing toward it. What is prayer? I, I, the image in my mind actually from the day at Santa Inez in Solvang, as the, as the protesters were leaving, so they, they had their say, 
And then they were walking away. I was with mostly Franciscans because there's a community of um, Capuchins right near there. And then the Franciscans who, who are active in this area. And they were in their habits. As the protesters walked away, they, 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 the Franciscans, raised their hands and sang a, a prayer, a blessing on them. And good. That's a, that's a great spiritual practice that we meet opposition with love. We don't meet it with uh, further opposition or with violence or with hatred. So love for those and understanding for those. I think a willingness to dialogue. We signal from the beginning, and I, I still signal it. Of course I'm happy to talk. Anyone that wants to talk about Junipero Serra has concerns. You know, we have a lot of um, people in the Native American community out here, and I understand their concerns. I totally get it. I mean, there are concerns about 18th century Spanish colonialism, but also about 19th century um, American oppression that certainly happened out here. Yeah, let's talk. I'm always open to conversation, dialogue. That's a very good practice. A third one, though, as I said, I think a willingness to defend our property and our statues, nonviolently, but boldly, you know, to call upon our people to say, no, we're not just going to allow any group to come mobbing their way onto our property and knocking down our statues. I mean, that's that's offensive in, in so many ways. And I think we should be willing and able to take a stand prayerfully and nonviolently. Um, and then also, what I love, I love what you guys are doing is emphasize the beauty in our tradition. Bring it forward positively. So we're not just reacting. We're saying, no, we got all these beautiful things that speak very profound truths. I think maybe a final one is, to our own people, is to get educated around, <clears throat> around these great figures like Junipero Serra. Learn their story from competent historians and don't get it from, you know, the internet. Get a, a informed, uh, full-bodied sense of who these people are so that we can come forward and say, no, that's a misinterpretation. Uh, no, that's not fair to him. You know. So I guess I'd mention all of those things. I'm sure there are many, many more we could say, but those come to my mind right away. Yeah, and you know, before even defending, you know, you mentioned uh, one possibility is defense against them, you know, but that's not something, you know, I always think it's sad when I, uh, I'm visiting a town or I'm driving by a church and I go up to go in and pray and it's locked or, yeah. or there's a fence around the church property or, you know, and I, I don't think that's something that we, we want to move towards is yeah. to be closing off churches or locking them up or, board, you know, making yeah. our churches inaccessible so it's it's what can we do positively to to build up the beauty and protect it while not uh, closing off the churches from access? Yeah, quite right. And as I said, I, I've been opposed to the instinct some people have had of let's lock the statues away or let's hide them away so people don't attack them. I think that's a bad instinct. Um, you know, we're living in, in parlous times. I mean, we're talking about knocking down statues right now. Look at France dealing with people being beheaded in their churches. I mean, so... There are real attacks against the church going on around the world. Talk to someone in Nigeria sometime about that. You know, so we shouldn't be uh, uh, blind to these things. And, and Aaron mentioned I'm on the Religious Liberty Committee. One thing we're concerned about is uh, the fate of Christians around the world and religious liberty in that really dire life or death sense. So I mean, those are those are great realities. But I, I agree with your instinct that, that kind of locking ourselves away is not a good path forward. I wonder, one other thing that comes to mind as y'all were talking about practices, I think that so many Catholic Christians, it seems like to me, are are a little bit hesitant or, or worried about, about 
living out their prayer life in public in some way. Uh, and and I, I, I had some friends, uh, I didn't have the chance to participate in this, but some friends of mine during rogation days this past, this past year, they just organized their own little procession. So it wasn't a Eucharistic procession, but it was just walking through the neighborhood. They were socially distanced and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And because this is when people weren't at mass, you know, so this was all just organized through a church listserv. But people want to gather, they wanted to gather and pray. And I, I do wonder if things like that, whether it's participating in the March for Life or, or processions or something where you're actually out of the church walls kind of can help strengthen you a little bit for those moments when if you did have to respond, it wouldn't be the first time that you were kind yeah. of declaring yourself to be a Catholic in public. Cause I, I think that that's what can really yeah. get to people. If it's the very first time and it yeah. takes you by surprise, yeah. people don't know how to respond to, to those sorts of things. That's I think. a super important point. I, I emphatically agree with you on that. And I, I've always been an advocate of public religion. And I'll give you an example. At the protest in Ventura, that was much more, it wasn't violent, but it was much more confrontational. But we had these wonderful kids from uh, Thomas Aquinas College, which is in my region, not that far from Ventura. And they came down and we gave them like a little, uh, you know, pep talk before and talked about nonviolence and everything. And we were going to pray the rosary. Well, these kids have prayed the rosary all their lives, but it was the first time they were praying the rosary in the face of people that were shouting uh, invective at them and shouting mm -hmm. abuse at them. And, you know, it's like when we go on these some of these uh, demonstrations in front of like Planned Parenthood and the same thing. Even these young kids have come out there to pray and they're getting people you know, honking horns at them and shouting obscenities at them. But that's not bad, you know, as you suggest, for people to realize, okay, my faith should make a difference and it's going to cost me something. And it's a very, very, very small martyrdom, but it's a kind of martyrdom. It's a kind of public witness. Mm -hmm. and so I think that's, Aaron, really right, that that's something we should continue to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Well, our listeners can learn more about this Beauty Heals initiative at uh, www.usccb.org forward slash beauty heals. Uh, and right now it's a very short playlist. Uh, we have a few videos uh, from different, from I uh, from five different bishops, but we'll, we will be adding more in coming weeks and months. Uh, and so we look forward to hearing those stories. We're also thinking about how we can expand that program. Bishop Barron, I'm sure we'll be tapping you to, <laughs> to help out with that as long as we still have you on the committee. Uh, so anyway, we look forward to expanding this and, think, and talking more about how we can confront this, this issue. Uh, I don't frankly see it going away. Uh, it probably will come in waves, but it, I, I think it's probably here with us for a little while. So we need to be prepared to be, to be bold, but also to, to um, share the beauty of our faith. Yeah. Um, Bishop Barron, thank you so much for taking time to join us. It's been a great conversation. You're welcome. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you both for the work you're doing. Thank you. Uh, God bless you. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.